And uh, it's a blessing to be able to assemble together uh, once again as, uh, uh, you know, over the next few weeks, this will start getting back to normal, this whole coming to the building thing that we've done for uh, time immemorial <laughs> that we've gotten sort of out of the, the habit of, of doing. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, it's going to feel a little bit strange at first. But, uh, you know, like riding a bike, you get right back into it, and uh, it feels good to be here together with all of you. Um, I'm going to take my lesson this morning from Acts chapter 26. So go ahead and be turning there. Acts chapter 26. And I've called this lesson Persuading Under Pressure. Persuading Under Pressure. In Acts chapter 26, uh, Paul is defending himself in front of King Agrippa. And um, th this is a, what you could uh, very safely call a high-pressure situation. Um, Paul is testifying before the highest dignitary, dignitary of his uh, local region, which would have been uh, Judea, and, and uh, Agrippa II was, was king of that area under the power of Caesar. The Romans... Um, uh, politically speaking, had a great interest in delegation of power, right? So Paul uh, appeals to uh, various procurators and then ultimately gets to speak before Agrippa and then appeals uh, and has already appealed in chapter 26 ultimately to Caesar and will ultimately testify there as well. So let's read a little bit of the context leading up to, to Acts chapter 26 very quickly and then we'll dive into the the chapter and we'll take most of our lesson there we'll turn a few other places but mostly we'll be staying in acts chapter 26 this morning but if you look at acts chapter 25 starting in verse 13 it says now when some days had passed agrippa the king and bernice arrived at caesarea and greeted festus festus is uh the procurator and as they stayed there many days Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it, is, that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met his accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charges laid against him. So when they came together, here I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered uh, the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case uh, of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tri tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. 
But I found that he has done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write, my lord, about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So the Jews had brought uh, Paul to this occasion. They had laid charges against him. Um, Festus finds him not guilty, um, but this is not satisfactory uh, to the Jews. And so he gives Paul the choice. Do you want to go to Jerusalem or do you want to go to Caesar? And Paul says he wants to appeal to Caesar. Um, so uh, this is sort of a, a, an intermediary point between Paul being under uh, trial before Festus and Paul going to uh, testify before Caesar. And Paul gets to speak before Agrippa. And again, this is a very high-pressure situation. So let's go through uh, Acts chapter 26, and let's keep in mind what, what I want us to focus on with this uh, study, the time that we have here today, is... Um, how we might take lessons from Paul's example in terms of how we persuade uh, others uh, toward the cause of Christ in situations where maybe we don't have a lot of time to think. Maybe we don't have a lot of uh, time for preparation. And in a situation where maybe there's a lot on the line. And I would suggest to you that in every case when we bring Christ before an unbeliever, there's a lot on the line. It matters how we make this case. Um, and the, uh, so let's, let's dive in and try to uh, take some applications for ourselves from the way that Paul uh, speaks to the king on this occasion. And the first thing I want us to note in verses 1 through 3 is that it is actually a great blessing uh, to get to offer such a defense. I always forget that I have to turn this thing on before it'll work. Hopefully this should work. My clicker. Is the, uh, the, the uh, you have to put in your, uh, Oh, yeah, it's not going to work. I'll just have to do it this way. It'll be okay. fine. So the first thing I want us to note in verses 1 through 3 is that it is a blessing to give such a defense. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So a few things here right up front. First thing is seize any opportunity you get to speak for yourself in the name of Christ. Now, uh, I, I know that the idea of speaking for yourself in the name of Christ is maybe a little bit complex because we can't just speak in any way that we want to. We're speaking on behalf of Christ, so that's uh, a big deal, right? We should put, a, put some thought into how we want to speak on behalf of the name of Christ. But if you get an opportunity where someone like Agrippa says to you, speak for yourself, tell me for yourself, what is so special about this Jesus? Why should I follow this Jesus? Give me a reason and people will often say things like this. And often, as may be the case here, they mean it as a challenge. But what you should receive it as is an invitation 
to do what the Lord has told you you must do. And that is to spread the word, make disciples of all men. Because Lord knows in most situations, uh, when it comes, with us, it comes to us interacting with the world, they're going to try to speak for you. They're going to try to say uh, you know, for you what Jesus is about and what Jesus means. And they're going to paint a picture of Jesus that is probably going to be incorrect. And so now we have the opportunity to speak for ourselves, to make our case. Why is Jesus so important for us? We should speak truthfully and from the heart in this, in this matter. And secondly, that, you know, a little bit of tasteful buttering up, which is something like what Paul is doing here in verse 2. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. So Paul says, in essence, to Agrippa, well, it's a good thing that such a, a wise person as you is here to hear my case. And so he, he opens with a little bit of a, of a compliment, right? But it's also uh, important to note, I think, that it is a, a good fortune. It is a blessing to be in such a situation as Paul finds himself. We are genuinely fortunate when we are in a situation where we can bring to someone uh, the word of Christ and make a defense for our faith. And so we should uh, speak as, as sweetly and as graciously with people as we possibly can in order to persuade, in order to, um, in order to convince. So he considers himself fortunate. And then he, he moves swiftly in verse 3 to the common ground that there is to be found. He says, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, if you, if you look at the historical record of, of Agrippa II and of his father, Agrippa I, they were not exactly uh, saviors of the Jewish people or the most righteous or knowledgeable of anyone that existed in that religious system at the time. But they were, as Paul suggests, quite familiar with the customs and the controversies because they, those customs and controversies directly affected how they would rule. So it, it, it makes sense that Paul appeals to uh, Agrippa in this way. So in the same way for us, if there's some common ground to be found, we need to meet them there and say, uh, we're on the same page here uh, on these certain matters. Now let me uh, uh, show to you uh, the way of Christ more perfectly. Um, and I think this is exactly what Paul does. Paul is seizing on the common uh, worldview that he and Agrippa ostensibly share, both being Jews. And, uh, and he's saying, let me expound on that. Let me show you how that same background led me to Christ. Um, it, it, it's a powerful thing when you can say, I was and am as you are, and I have been brought into Christ through God's grace. And we'll see that uh, exactly in the next few sections, uh, in verses 4 through 8 and then verses 9 through 11, Paul uh, is going to essentially assert his unity with those who are accusing him, saying, I come from the same background as you, and I used to be just like you in opposing the way of Christ. In verses 4 through 8, he, uh, he says he is uh, one with his accusers in their um, self-righteousness before the law, in their pharisaical ways. This is the background that Paul comes from. 
Paul says in verses 4 through 5, let's, let's read verses 4 through 8. My manner of life from my youth, being spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul says in verses two through five, or in verses four through five, "I'm one of you. I come from the same background as you, and those who are accusing me can confirm that if they're willing to do so." Paul says, "Of the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee." Paul says, "I know the law. I know the old law and the prophets and the wisdom literature of the ancient uh, Hebrews and the ancient Jews." And so, it's this same background that's leading me to Christ. And in verse 6, I think we see that. Specifically, it's our Christian hope that should always motivate our testimony. I think sometimes we're motivated um, to testify of Christ to people because we, we look at them and we say, these people are lost and they need to be found. And that is exactly right. That's correct. But you could turn that around and also say, I've been found, I share, or I have this hope of, of resurrection to glory and honor with God. And this person who I'm looking at, who is lost, should be in that hope with me too. I want them with me in the last day. I want them to share in the rejoicing that will take place in the last day. And so desiring the hope we have for others is a great motivator when it comes to getting out uh, the word uh, of Christ. You say to people, did you know that you could be resurrected from the dead? That if you put your faith in Christ, you will certainly be resurrected from the dead to glory. That is a, is a lesson in and of itself and a lesson that, I, that I've preached here before, so I won't go off on too far of a tangent there. But keeping our hope in mind is vital when it comes to spreading the word. We have to keep in mind the prize, what we're aiming for. That's at the end of everything we do is our resurrection to glory with God. And then in verse 7, um, it is that same hope, though, that the world will mock and the world will disbelieve. Because it's a fantastic thing, right? that we are to be raised from the dead to imperishable bodies. But in verse 7, Paul says, uh, it's this very hope which all of our forefathers put their hope in. The hope of all those who've gone before us and our hope are one. It's this hope for which uh, in the temple they worship night and day uh, for the coming of one who will save, one who will liberate. Paul says, he's come. This is the hope that I believe in, and it's for this hope that I am accused. This hope is what the world will mock and disbelieve today when we tell them that we will be raised and that the Savior of all the world came and that he will come again. Some people don't want to believe. And so uh, Paul acknowledges this fact. 
that some will retract from, uh, from the light, just as Paul himself once did, by the way. And so we should expect that not everyone will accept uh, this, this message of hope um, straight away. In fact, many people will violently resist it. The idea of God raising the dead, though, Paul says, should not be incredible to you if you've taken in God's nature and His character and you've studied from the Scriptures who He is. God is the author of creation. God is the one who stands outside of everything that is. God is the baseline reality that you exist within and a part of His divine image exists within you. This is part of the mystery of his, of his character and His working. And when we take in that big picture idea of God and who He is and what He does, then it should be no amazing or incredible thing that He has power over death itself, that He raises whom He wills. It should not be something that anyone, uh, when they have studied what the Scriptures say about God, should balk at, especially not a group of Jews who should have been more acquainted with the Scriptures than anyone. And so Paul says, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And he doesn't really go on any farther on that. He just leaves that question sort of open-ended. And sometimes that's what we can do as well. We don't have to go down every rabbit trail with everyone who we're trying to teach the gospel to, but sometimes it's important to just Ask open-ended questions for their consideration. Like, why do you think it's so incredible or so unbelievable that God could raise men from the dead? But then he's going to go on and assert his unity with his accusers in the sense that he also used to persecute the way of Christ. In verses 9 through 11. He says, in verses 9 through 11, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul says, I used to oppose the name too. In verse 9, he said, I was convict, convinced that I ought to do many things opposing to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Paul didn't just fall into opposition of Jesus as a default. Paul was convinced that the way of Christ was wrong. Paul was convinced that it was right for him to persecute the, those who believed on Christ. It was his genuine conviction that this was correct. And not only that, but in verse 10, uh, he thought it was righteous to steal and kill in the name of this conviction. When, when he locks people, saints up in prison, he, he steals from them and deprives from them their freedom, having received authority from the chief priests to do so. He unlawfully imprisons Christians for having done no wrong, and even to the point of taking their lives, in verse 10. Paul comes from a uniquely troubled background, right? 
he persecuted the church, and, and we can't all say the same thing. We can't all say, in fact, I don't think any of us can say, I was once uh, a raging uh, Pharisee who uh, persecuted the church into other cities and into other lands. But we can say, there is no sin so despicable that I would not sink that low. We can say, we came from utter darkness and utter sinfulness into the light of Christ, just as Paul did. And anyone who we're speaking with about the way, about the word of, of Christ and about the gospel, we can make this same appeal to as well. I used to be in just as dark a place as you were. I used to find myself in this endless cycle of, of sin and having a desire to be better and not knowing the way and then sinning again and having a desire to be better and not knowing the way and feeling this weight of condemnation on my shoulders that I didn't know how to release. I've known what that feels like. It's important that people who we're speaking to about the gospel know that we know what that feels like. And of course, it's important for them to know also that we're not perfect, that even in Christ, we require mercy. We require intercession on, from Christ before the Father. But the weight has been lifted, friends, and that is what we offer to the world. We've been brought out from under the great crushing rock of condemnation that rested over us and into the light. And everyone who we meet who's in need of the gospel can be brought into the light too. Paul says, I even used to blaspheme the way and the will of God before I came into Christ. He tried to make them blaspheme, that is, make them deny the name of Christ. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Not just in Jerusalem, but all throughout the land, Paul went persecuting Christians. What we, have to, what we have to make people understand is that you, you may say, well, I don't have anything against Christ. I just don't believe in him. But when we're outside of Christ, friends, we are opposing his way and his will. Because it's his will that all would be saved. And so even if we're not persecuting the church actively as Paul was, when we find ourselves outside of Christ and when we come to Christ... We find ourselves, as he was, kicking against the goads, resisting God's will for us. God's will for every human being is that they would be saved, that they would come to Christ and accept his grace. He's offered us a very simple solution. Accept the mercy that has been given to you. Accept the grace that has been given to you and do the things that follow from that grace. It's, it's very straightforward. When we find ourselves outside of Christ, we blaspheme the way and will of God. But even this blasphemy can be remedied. Paul, uh, even though he, uh, he resisted God's will, was not so far gone that he could not be brought back for God's purposes. And so we come to the point of divergence. We come to the thing that makes Paul different 
from the people who are accusing him. And that point of divergence is, I keep forgetting this thing is, doesn't work. That point of divergence is an encounter with Jesus Christ. In verses 12 through 18, Paul describes this. In this connection, being connected to persecuting uh, Christians even in foreign cities, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me, which you have, to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul says, not only was I opposing the way of Christ, but I was opposing his way when he found me. When Paul had his famous encounter with Jesus Christ, he was on the road to persecute Christians. He was on his way to deliver Christians to imprisonment and death, to steal them, to steal from them their freedom and to deprive them of their life. This is when Paul appealed to, or this is when Christ appeared to Paul. And so, for each of us, Christ appears to us when we are still in sin, when we are still resisting Him, when we are still persecuting His way, that is where He finds us. And He blinds us with His light and knocks us down. Verse 13. At midday, He sees this light from heaven that's brighter than the sun. And the sun was often deified in the ancient world, let's remember. But this light is greater even than the light of the sun, it shines around him and around those who journeyed with him. And so we are changed. The point of change in our life comes from our encounter with Christ, the great light. When we've been exposed to the light of Christ, we have two choices. We can accept or we can reject. We can embrace the light and let it give light to our lives or we can reject the light and live forever in darkness. This is the choice we bring before men. And it's often a choice that takes some time and some understanding to fully appreciate and to come to. So as we're going to talk about a little bit through this chapter, we shouldn't expect always there to be immediate results from this. But this is the choice that we bring before men. Accept the light or live in the darkness. Jesus says to Paul in verse 14, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
We understand the question, why are you persecuting me? But sometimes I think we don't understand what's meant by it's hard for you to kick against the goads, but it's very important. A goad was a long stick that had spikes on the end of it. And it was used in agriculture with large beasts of burden, particularly oxen, to spur them along to make them go in a certain direction. And the, 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 the farmer, the one working the land, would uh, strike at the, 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 cat, the oxen's limbs and say, go on, the back legs, say, and, and say, go on in, in the direction that I want you to go. And you know, an oxen is a bit of a stubborn creature. It's a, big of a bit of a big creature. It's going to test out the limits of that uh, method of motivation. And so the oxen would often kick back against the strikes that would come from the ones who, who spurred on the oxen. It's an image for us. God is directing everything in the way that he would have it to go. And sometimes we think that we're strong enough to resist him. But the oxen always ends up going the way that the farmer wants it to go. The, the human farmer has the ultimate advantage over the oxen. Even though the oxen is big and strong, the human can use tools. And so the oxen is going to go where the farmer wants it to. Um, and so this resistance is futile. And so for us, to stand in opposition to the will of God, to resist His call, His simple call to come to His grace is the utmost resistance of His will. We kick against the goads when we stand outside of Christ. We resist His will for us. And it's important that we, that we make people understand they can choose to reject Christ, but when they do so, they resist the will of God, and they do so at their own calamity, at their own expense. God's will will be done. The dead will be raised. All who've ever lived will be judged. And all will be made right and under the power of God once again. And there is nothing that any of us can do to stop that or resist that. The best thing we can do is embrace God's will, is surrender to His grace. This is the message we're bringing before the world. God will win. Good will win, whether you're a part of it or not. But we need to make people understand they want to be a part of it. And to not be a part of it is the worst condemnation that could ever fall on anyone. Verse 15, Jesus is not just a man, but an eternal Lord. Jesus is not just a wise man who said some things a long time ago. Jesus is an eternal, divine being, a Lord, the Lord, the Master. That word Lord has connection with uh, the, the ancient household, uh, the structuring of a household, especially a wealthy household. The Lord is the one who manages the estate, and everyone who's connected with this family, uh, including servants and slaves and all underlings, are in submission to the Lord. And so Paul recognizes him as such in verse 15. Who are you, Lord, he calls him. And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persuading. 
See, when we've convinced people that there is a God who has power, who men must submit their will to, they're going to ask, what is the nature of this God? Who is this God? How, we, how may we approach Him? And the answer is, you may approach Him only through Jesus. Jesus is the way that we enter into communion with the will of the one true God. Who are you, Lord? This question is so vitally important. Paul recognizes the Lord's power, but he doesn't yet know his identity. There are a lot of people in the world who will say, I believe there's a God, and I recognize that he has power over things that, that I don't understand, that he works in ways that I can't wrap my mind around, but I just, I just don't know about all, all the Jesus stuff. I don't, I've never been taught. People might say this. It's our job to bring it before them, to show them that the identity of the Lord, whom they already have some intuitive recognition of, is in fact Jesus Christ, and that they may enter into the Lord's will through Jesus Christ and be washed of their sins. And in verse 16, this sense of, 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 of destiny and purpose that we find in our Lord. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and those things in which I will appear to you. Okay, so this is a little bit of a complex sentence. And I, I actually realize that I've misquoted it slightly here. He says, I have appeared to you for this purpose. But he, there is also talk of appointing Paul as a servant and witness to these things that you have seen, the, these things in which you have seen me. So that would be the vision that he has appeared to Paul in here on the road to Damascus. And also the ways in which he will see him in the future. So Paul has a, an ongoing communication of sorts, it seems, with the Lord. And Jesus says, I've appeared to you and appointed you for this purpose, to share these things with the Gentiles, he's going to say in verse 17, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles. So um, he's delivering... Uh, there is a sense in which Israel is saved from the oppression of the Gentiles, which is the main concern of many of, his, of the Jews at, at this time, um, by going out to the Gentiles. It's not that the Jewish faith is going to be preserved forever, as they thought, by the Messiah. The temple is going to be destroyed in 70 AD, and the, the paradigm of Judaism would forever change from that point on um, into uh, what I would call a deluded form of of, of the religion. But they're, they are delivered from this trouble by being transformed into something else. They go out to all the Gentiles and persuade them. And so uh, these wild branches are grafted onto this tree, to use the metaphor that Paul uses in, in Romans. Um, and so the tree becomes changed. We also are, have, have seen Christ, have had an experience with Christ when we came to Him, and we were appointed for a purpose. We are here in this work, in the grace of Christ, for a purpose, for a reason. We have work to do. It's not just that we stand in, in God's grace and we say, 
whew, relief is, is, is here, the burden is lifted, and I'm just going to camp here because it feels so great to be saved and to be forgiven. Of course it feels great to be saved and forgiven, friends, but if we're just sitting on the grace that we've been given and not telling the world and not growing it, not increasing it, we're the one talent servant who buried his talent. We don't want to be that servant, uh, if you remember that parable. Um, it, we, we must be investing that grace that we've received in others. We must be sowing the seed that we've been given in others. And we will um, take our part in the transformative work that God has planned for human beings, individual people, and for this world when we take our place uh, in the will of God and deliver to them the message that Paul delivered, both to Agrippa and to the Gentiles, many of whom he formerly persecuted. What, what is his purpose? What is the mission of this great rescue mission we see in verse 18? The purpose is, in verse 18, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So let's break that down. When we're, to open their eyes, when we're walking in the world, we're walking around with our eyes closed. And we don't know it. We need someone to come to us and bring us the grace of God to open our eyes. And this is the literal experience that Paul has on the road to Damascus. He's blinded. His eyes are closed. And he's told that in three days someone will come to him and tell him what he must do. Paul's eyes are reopened by the grace of God, but a, a human agent comes and delivers to him the message. It's Simon, if you remember. So Paul has his eyes opened that, that they may turn from darkness to light. Again, Christ is the great light. So when we walk without him, we walk in darkness. When we walk with him, our way is illuminated. To turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. When we're walking outside of Christ, we're walking by the power of Satan. If we have any power, if we can do anything outside of Christ, it's by the power of Satan. That's a very disturbing thought. When we come into Christ, though, we come into the power of Christ, and we are empowered by Him. For what? Well, we, we received forgiveness of sins, first of all. That's a big thing. We, again, the guilt, the weight, the condemnation is lifted by the forgiveness that Christ offers. And we're given a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Sanctified means set apart. Set apart for the purposes of God. When we come to Christ, we are set apart for the purposes of God. We join those who labor in His purposes. So we've been changed by an encounter with Christ. That's the only thing that separates us from those to whom we're trying to evangelize. We have embraced Christ and rejoiced in His grace and done the things which he asked us to do. This is all that is asked of anyone. Accept his grace and do the things that he has asked us to do. Namely, be baptized and washed of your sins 
and walk after him, follow him as the disciples were called to follow him. And follow doesn't just mean go where he goes, but it means emulate his ways, emulate his speech, emulate his thoughts, make Christ a part of us. That's what we've been asked to do. And that's what we offer to the world. A transformative faith. A faith that takes you from what you were to what you should be. Alright, so now we get into the nitty gritty of it in verses 19 through 23. We have here, I think, represented um, something that I think will, will dovetail nicely with the lesson I'm going to preach tonight. I'm going to preach a lesson tonight about why human life is sacred from a biblical perspective. But I think we have here in verses 19 uh, through 23 a good prologue to that lesson, which is human beings are vessels for the gospel of light. Paul was a sinner just like you or me, just as despicable and lost in sin as you or I were. And when he accepted Christ, everything changed. He became a vessel through which the gospel comes and abounds into the world. And that is what each of us can be. Let's look at verses 19 through 23. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to great, both to small and great, saying nothing but was in the but that what but that what saying nothing but that but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer, and that be, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So in verses 19 and 20, Paul did not disobey the call of Christ. He went out and he fished for men. Now, we're not uh, promised a, a heavenly vision uh, from, from Christ himself uh, to kickstart uh, our evangelistic efforts, and I don't think that is what's required. All that is really required is the simple command of Christ um, to go to all the world. The idea that Christ brought to his disciples, which was that they would become fishers of men. And that idea carries with it the idea that we are in the business of persuading human beings that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one can approach the Father except through him. So we do not disobey the heavenly vision. Not some personal heavenly vision that comes to us, but the heavenly visions that have been shown to men through this, these sacred scriptures and which still speak to us today. which still have much to say to us today if we will listen. And if you do as commanded, if you take this message to the world, you will be hated and you will be persecuted. He says in verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Um, again, Paul states, these were the people who should have rejoiced the most to hear this news. Paul, uh, in most of his writings and, and in this speech here, will appeal to 
the Jewishness of his audience and say, um, this is the fulfillment of everything you believe. This is uh, the, the, the thing which all the prophets and all the patriarchs hoped in. And yet, some of those closest, or should, who should have been closest to this message and most ready to receive it are the ones who are most aggravated and, 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 and most uh, provoked by it. And so often it is with us, people who think that they are very righteous already seem to have no need for, for, for Christ. And this should cause us to, to change the way we think about evangelism sometimes, I'm convinced. I think a lot of the time we want to get people who are, again, I've, I've used this phrase before, but easy-bait Christians, right? They're people who are most of the way there. We just need to, to plop them in our building, we think, and, and get them sort of on the same page with us, and then they'll be all good. But friends, that's often not who's going to be receptive to the word. It's often not people who think that they are righteous and, and, and it's saved already, but those who know with certainty that they are lost, who are ready to receive the word. There are a lot of lost people in the world around us. There are a lot of lost people here in Vacaville. And there are a lot of lost people who know that they're lost. Some of them want to stay lost. I'll just be honest with you about that. There have always been people who are lost and don't care to be found. It's unfortunate. But we don't know people's hearts. We don't know who's ready to receive the word. And it's not ours to know. All that has been given to us to do is to bring them the word. Those who are lost and know that they're lost know that they need a savior, know that they need change. We can show them that change. It's not difficult. It's, it's, it's quite simple. And in fact, Agrippa, or at least one of the ways that you can read his question at the end of this chapter, or his statement, however you break it down, is him marveling at the simplicity of what Paul has presented and thinking that that would persuade him to be a Christian. But friends, the message is simple. Believe in Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess his name before men. Be baptized. Be cleansed from your sins. And follow him. That's the walk. That's the life. Of course, there are more layers to it than that. There's study that we go into uh, that, that spurs us to greater faith and greater devotion to him. But the way in is quite simple. Anyone can come to it. We don't need to um, know someone intimately as a friend. We don't need to have everybody's, uh, you know, a lengthy background dossier on everyone. All we need to ask them is, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you want to know him? That question alone will open many, many doors. We see, I think, a series of interesting things in verses 22 and 23, and I'm going fast here to wrap up within our time frame. But uh, in verses 22, he says, To this day I have, been, I have had the help that comes from God. And so Paul's going to, in the beginning of verse 22, take an opportunity to do something we should do more often, which is credit God with every good thing that happens. 
Credit God with everything. But Paul specifically has had some, some direct divine help from God, and so that's got to be a great relief in situations like this. And sometimes I think we think, well, Paul had God talking in his ear, and so he had it easy, but I've got it hard. Um, but friends, again, I'll point out, we also have God talking in our ear, so to speak, through this book. If you get this book in your head and in your heart, helplessly you'll find verses and phrases and biblical words popping into your brain and out of your mouth as you speak. And so in the same way, God helps and supports and comforts us as he did Paul. And then he credits those who came in the past, the latter half of verse 22. So I stand here testifying both to small and great. There's no distinction between people of high and low prominence in Christ. Testifying to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Again, Paul says this is the fulfillment of our hope, of our religious faith, uh, speaking to the Jews. And we credit those who have lived in the past. Their hope is our hope. They looked forward to the one who would liberate, who would save, and we have found him and we proclaim him. In verse 23, he credits Christ for winning us the victory. Verse 23 in the first half of verse 23, that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Christ would suffer, and he suffered on our behalf, and not just that, but that as he was raised from the dead, Paul says he's the first to rise from the dead. And this goes right along with an idea that he expresses quite clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ is the first fruits of our resurrection. That to understand how we'll be raised in the last day, we have to look at Christ's <clears throat> resurrection. And that Christ's resurrection is evidence, is confirmation, that such a thing can happen and will happen through the power of God. That he would proclaim light both to our people and the Gentiles. When he says our people, he means Jews, speaking to a room it seems mostly full of Jews. And to the Gentiles. Christ is a light for the whole world. I don't think we appreciate um, how radical this was. The Jews saw th their Torah as a light for the whole world, but they didn't want everybody in on it, actually. Um, you could become a proselyte uh, Jew... Um, but you were never, uh, it, it seems, you were never fully integrated into the faith in terms of being of a common heritage, being a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You would never have the full dignity of a fellow Jew as a Gentile convert. But not so with Christ. Christ is a light for all peoples. It's not an exclusive light for a certain nation or a certain people, but for everyone who will. Everyone who will believe. And then we see a return to this appeal to common belief that we saw in the first three verses. 
And it's a good place to, to close out a, a defense. Verses 24 through 27. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. Where this has not been done in a corner... King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. When you, get a sh to, when you get to show the world a glimpse of God's great plan, you will be called insane. You will be mocked. You will be derided as a crazy person. This is par for the course. And, and Paul, it seems, accepts this, but counters it by saying... No, I'm not out of my mind. And actually, what we speak is according to reason, and more importantly, is true. <clears throat> true in the sense of having a resonance with the inspired words that came before, which is why he, why he pivots directly to the prophets with King Agrippa. He says in verse 26, um, for uh, the king knows about these things, and Paul is basically saying, he's the one I'm really talking to, and uh, I know that he knows about these things. And so there's a lesson for us there too. You, this, this may be a circumstance where you're speaking with a lot of people around, but have one person as your aim, your object. Speak directly to the one you hope to affect, even if others are around. Paul is aiming high here. He's trying to convince the king of his entire region of the validity both of Christ as the Messiah and of his sacrifice and his forgiveness. And I, I know that Paul is aware that other people standing around in the room may hear and be persuaded by this, but his aim, it seems, is single-minded on Agrippa. And he asks Agrippa this pointed question, do you believe in the prophets? And then he says, I know that you do believe. Ask your subject irresistible questions. When we're evangelizing people, ask people questions which demand a thoughtful answer. It doesn't mean that you'll always get one, but it does mean that it will provoke them to thought, and that's all that you're aiming to do. Ask your subject an irresistible question, like, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. Agrippa's in a tight spot when Paul asks that question. Because, because of Agrippa's position as king, he can't very well say, I don't believe in the prophets. He wouldn't last very long as king of the Jewish people if he said that publicly. Um, and yet, Paul is asking him to assent to what he's already said, which is that the prophets spoke of the hope that Paul has now put his trust in. That is Jesus Christ. So what's Agrippa going to do? What's he going to say? The moment of truth, verses 28 through 29. Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, 
except for these chains. There are several different ways that you can read. I'm sorry, the screen is cutting this off at the bottom. That's, that's my, uh, my mistake. There are several different ways you can read and interpret Agrippa's question here in the original Greek grammar. There may be other possibilities too, but these are three main ones that I seized on. He could be saying, on so little, meaning so little evidence, or such a short presentation, you would persuade me to become a Christian? Or he could be saying, in so little time, you would persuade me to become a Christian? Or he might be saying, not as a question, but as a statement, in a little time, you would persuade me to become a Christian. You may uh, take your pick of which one of those you think fits the context best. It's a little bit murky. And this is one of the things I like about the Bible, just as a side note, uh, is that uh, politicians still speak like politicians 2,000 years ago <laughs> in, in, in the Bible. But that, with that aside, um, Agrippa's response is ambiguous. And Paul doesn't let that deter him, though, if you note Paul's response. Paul takes what Agrippa has responded with and turns it back toward his ultimate aim, which is persuasion toward Christ. In verse 29, he says, Whether short or long, I would to God that not, that not only you, but all who hear me this day will become such as I am. We have to be ready to play either the short or the long game when it comes to winning souls for Christ. There's some people who you give them the simple gospel, you tell them what they need to do, and they're ready to do it. Right there. And we should rejoice at that. That should be um, a crown jewel when we find someone who's ready to accept on such a simple, straightforward basis. But that is a way that souls are converted and are converted regularly. There are also some people who need some more persuasion, who need more long-suffering, who need more patience. And that's okay. We can give them that too. What's important is that they come to be as we are, not that we're so special, but that we have been brought into the grace of God through Christ. That is what we want for everyone we interact with. And Paul adds, except for these chains. See, Paul's been deprived of his freedom just like he used to take other people's freedom from them. And I think maybe Paul views that as his cross to bear, so to speak, for uh, maybe some things that he's done in the past. But he says, I don't want this for anyone else. I want everyone to experience the freedom that comes from being uh, brought into the grace of Christ. Then the king arises in verse 30. The king arose and the governor and Bernice and all those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man has done nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. All could see that Paul was innocent of these charges that were brought. And all were also confounded in verse 32 by Paul's apparent lack of self-interest by appealing to Caesar. They said he could have been set free uh, if he had not done so. But again, I think we have to put ourselves in Paul's shoes here, in Paul's mindset. We were told that, that, that 
by entering into Christ, and Christ himself told us this, that we would uh, be persecuted, but we would also get the opportunity to proclaim the word before kings and dignitaries and powerful people. And so Paul's aiming for the highest dignitary in the land, and that is Caesar. And so Paul getting released of these charges is not even really on Paul's radar, I don't think. It's, it's, it's not a concern of his um, in comparison with the concern of bringing the word to the highest and widest possible audience. And that's what he intends to do. I think it's worth closing on 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. And again, this is a, a passage that we've studied at, at length in a series of lessons that I did a few months back. But it's worth going back over verses 1 through 11, which that's a section that I did a whole standalone lesson on, where Paul speaks of this hope and what drives us as Christians, what we have as our end goal and motivation. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you have been saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time, most of whom, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. His grace toward me was not in vain. Don't let anyone ever say that the grace that God showed you was in vain, that it didn't lead to anything, that it didn't become anything else. The grace we've been given is meant to be passed on to others. It's meant to be shown to others. It's by God's grace that we are what we are. And we should want to work harder than anyone, not because that's what saves us or what makes us good, but because we have God's grace with us. We can't fail. All will be well within the will of God and through God's grace. Whether it's I or they, so we preach and so you believe. We believe and we preach that same message. Sometimes we sow a seed, we give a word to someone, and we see no reaction, we see no result. 
That was the case in Acts 26. We see no immediate result there with King Agrippa. But a door has been left open. Agrippa's response leaves room for growth. And that's really all we... uh, That's a great blessing to see. That's all we can really hope for. In fact, often people will reject our word or our, our seed outright, thinking of the seed as the word which we sow. And sometimes we sow a word... And some time down the line, maybe it's 10, 20 years, that word bears fruit. Maybe we never even know about it. But it's because of our contributions. It's because of our work through Christ, leading others to God, showing them the great hope that we've been given. I've gone over my time this morning, so I will leave it there. But friends... If you've not been brought into that hope, if you do not know uh, the, the grace of God, you must believe that Jesus is the Savior of man. You must confess His name before men. You must um, repent of your sins. You must turn toward God and surrender to His will. That is entailed in repentance. And you must be baptized, cleansed of your sins, washed, and brought into a covenant relationship with God to follow after Him all your life, to be His disciple and to learn from Him all your life. This is what we persuade people toward. Even when the pressure is on, we can make this case. It's not an impossible task. It is one of the most needful and pressing things we could do as a Christian. And it should be our daily goal and mission. Let me in some small way bring a word about my Savior to someone who may not know, someone who may be lost. If you have any need, we ask that you please come.